What's going on, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, I have a very awesome guest. This is my good friend, a Christian. Christian is a doctor living in Manhattan, New York, and he has his own podcast called Thrive, the uh, Christian, uh, I think it's Bier, right? Yeah, that's exactly how you pronounce it. There we go. Christian Bier, a Thrive Christian Bier podcast. And this guy is a hustler. I went on his podcast and I got to learn a little bit more about his story and the hustle he had to go through to get him where he's at. And it was actually very inspirational. I was like, wow, it really put things into perspective. Now, uh, Christian, just for those who aren't familiar with who you are, explain a little bit about your backstory and how you got to being a doctor and one of the I believe Manhattan is literally the most expensive city in the U.S. I think so. I think it is. I, I, I mean, maybe, maybe San Francisco, maybe Boston, probably are around the same price, I would say. But if you want to go to find the most expensive real estate out there, probably Manhattan, probably. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I can tell you my, my, my story and how I ended up here. So I'm originally from Ecuador. I was born in Ecuador. I'm part Danish. Uh, but most of my life, I lived in Ecuador. I did high school there. I went to a German high school. Uh, all my classes were in German. Math was in German. Physics was in German. It was not fun, but I liked the language. And, and it got, I got a little bit of good experience from the openness and the spontaneity of being a Latin person and the discipline and almost neuroticism of, of the German lifestyle and the obsessiveness component, which has been very useful in my life. So I did a little bit of that and I decided to do med school. I did it in Ecuador and I took a break uh, and the second year went to Denmark. I told you the whole story last time we met, but but basically I just I, I realized that I wanted to do better and 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 if I had just like learned from my teachers and that's it, I would have probably become a mediocre doctor. And I I just took a break to really set my priorities straight. I decided to only read in English in medicine in English. And to really just self-study until I would finish med school. Then I applied to come to the U.S. I ended up doing my residency, my psychiatry residency at Duke University, which is one of the top programs in the country. And then I moved to New York where I did my psycho-oncology fellowship, which is the psychiatry aspect of cancer patients. And, and, I, and I did this last year at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which I, I arguably is the psycho-oncology leading institution in, in the world. And, and I'm still there and I'm doing research right now. I'm doing COVID research specifically, and I'm doing also other types of research related to technology and healthcare, to wellness, burnout, and I'm slowly getting into psychedelic assisted psychotherapy for the existential distress of the terminally ill cancer patients as well. Um, So that's what I'm doing right now. There's a reason I'm in Manhattan, love this city, love my friends here, and I don't think I'm going to go anywhere. Nice. So what does it look like in terms of like, uh, like the research is coming out with like psychedelics? Are you guys testing things? 
and uh, like seeing what's beneficial dosages what does that look like so specifically when it comes to psychedelics you know research started in like around the 50s well into the 60s even to the 70s there was a little bit of grant funds that were spread out in different institutions then nixon came out with um the scheduling system psychedelics became a schedule one substance and no more research was allowed to be done in psychedelics but around before that happened there were really really promising studies on the use of psychedelics for different conditions specifically cancer related existential distress uh, drug abuse alcoholism um opioid use and even cluster headaches the the research was so interesting and it was just completely cut off the, there, there are other substances that are not quite psychedelics, but were also being researched around that time and maybe even up to the 80s, MDMA being one of them uh, for specifically the use of PTSD, couples therapy, it was something that was used on. And then slowly into the 2000s, early 2000s, it started to resurface very slowly, way more thought was done around it to, to really just show safety, to really show safety, to show that it was not addictive. Psychedelics have not shown that are an addictive substance at all. And, yeah. and side effects are like almost non-existent. Uh, as long as you do it in a, in a controlled setting, very rare that you would get a side effect. And so, so a lot of really conscious, thoughtful research was, there, uh, was done in the early 2000s just to, to show that this was a safe substance to, to use. And it has slowly expanded. It has slowly expanded where now there are phase three studies underway, specifically MDMA for the uh, treatment of PTSD. Just yesterday, I haven't read this article yet, but it's on my read list on... So MDMA right now is being uh, researched for the use of PTSD. It's on the phase three trial, hopefully around uh, next year or maybe beginning of 2022. We'll find out whether it worked. And if it did, the FDA would probably say, okay, you can prescribe this for PTSD. But what's interesting is that yesterday, a study came out showing that the use of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, it's probably the most cost-effective way to deal with PTSD in comparison with um, any other psychotherapy that has been provided right now. I think that what they showed, I just read a headlight, a highlight, sorry. And what it says is that over the next 30 years, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy would save like insurance companies like around $100 million or so. Wow. So it seems promising for sure. And, but we have to wait whether it's going to be effective in the ultimate phase of research. Then that's one branch of research that is being done. Another one is psilocybin, which is the active component in what people call magic mushrooms. And that... Um, is that if there are phase two studies, uh, phase two studies underway, and just to explain very quickly what phase, what these phases mean is that the FDA has a very systematic way in, in which to test substances. First, you have 
when it comes to uh, human research, you have phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one, you just give the particular intervention, uh, this drug to healthy people and just make sure that there's no side effects. Then you go to phase two, in which you, you give it to people that, are, uh, that have the condition that you wish to treat, but just a small number of people to, to see if there's actually a difference. And then if those are positive, then you can go and move along to phase three studies in, in which you, you ideally grab a big chunk of the population and you, wanna, you want that population to be diverse so that you know that it works in different types of people and, 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 and in a grander scale. Because you could say that if it's only working in a small number of people, it could have been just random, like just those people got benefit. But if you pick a bigger chunk of the uh, uh, just bigger sample then it's less likely that the results are due to chance and so psilocybin has been researched right now for uh, addiction and for major depressive disorder also other thing, things like cluster headache etc and what i'm interested in is it, on its research on existential distress for the terminally ill cancer patients that uh, there are phase two studies that have been done already. There are no current phase three studies underway, but hopefully they will sometime soon. Yeah, what have you um, seen from the from your research so far with using psychedelics with um, you know cancer patients? Well, the 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 research that I'm involved in at this time is in a secondary analysis from an NYU study on. The psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy in the existentially ill cancer patients. What we're trying to figure out is that you know, you you want we wanted. Uh, I I wasn't uh, I didn't participate in the original study, but the main group wanted to make sure that they they weren't treating people that were, for example, particularly suicidal, but there were some metrics that were captured when, they, when these patients were interviewed uh, to see if there was some desire for, for haste and death, which is not the same thing as suicidal, but it, it kind of like correlates. And this secondary analysis, which hasn't come out yet, it may come out in the next month or two, and the data has been analyzed right now. But basically what, what it's, what, what we're trying to see if that is that if these people that had an increased desire for haste and death, just like, I feel so sick, I just wish that, I'm not actively suicidal, but I wish that just the sickness would just take me and I would just die because I'm suffering so much. If that way of thinking would be changed after getting an intervention from psilocybin. And that's, what we're, that, that's one of the things I'm doing right now. And hopefully, I mean, I'm excited to, to see what the findings will be. Hopefully, if, if, if there's a positive signal, it, it would be very, very exciting, I would say. Oh, yeah, most definitely, man. You know, I never, I never really went into psychedelics with the intention of, of like the healing, especially with like um, trauma that's happened in my own life. And when I noticed that was a side effect to be able to look at very emotionally charged events in my life and be able to look at them without the emotion and being able to take the lessons from that, to me, I was like, whoa, this is actually a lot deeper than I thought 
this would take me. And it's interesting to see, it totally makes sense that they would use that. Like I, that, like that's very specific, like cancer patients uh, specifically who have like an existential crisis, right? It totally makes sense why they would use that. And also with, I've heard Joe Rogan talk about this on his podcast about MDMA being a way to really uh, do a lot of, do a lot of healing as well. I think this is all this stuff is interesting because like society, we tend to look down upon that kind of stuff and it makes sense for years after Nixon bans it and concerning the news and the media puts out certain kind of information. It's like the masses just kind of follow this without really too much thought into it and it's cool to see that's picking up and i'm excited to see what would happen with this what's going to happen in the next 10 years next 20 years it's going to look completely different i i think that the potential is so promising i think that let's say so so far we don't have phase three studies but the phase two studies show a significant in like immediate drastic reduction in symptoms of depression and anxiety in these people that that were existentially depressed or had existential anxiety. And this lasted, it seems like there was a a secondary analysis that that one of the things that it analyzes how how long these uh, effects lasted for. And it seems like it was around six months at the very least. That's how long it was studied. I don't know, it could be longer, it could be not. I mean, there's still some, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's still a, a very young field and there are some nuances that, that need to be explored. And, but it's promising. Like if you think about it right now, we have antidepressants, we have psychotherapy. Those are the, the, the couple main, main things that we have in psychiatry to treat depression or major depressive disorders or generalized anxiety disorders. And, and they help. I mean, there's evidence that, that it shows that it helps, but they, they take some time to help. And the amount of help and the amount of people they help, it's less than ideal. And, and I do wonder what would happen if we, if we had uh, another substance that not only does it eliminate or reduce significantly the symptoms of depression, but it gives you meaning. Right, like that's one of the things that have also been shown that it really that it gives meaning to the people that are taken that that take it in this context, and and meaning can be very useful in your life, right? Like if it, like a life with no meaning is is not a fun life. It, it's definitely not a fun life. And if you're able to find something to direct your life that is really really important to you you're going to have a, a, a way more fulfilling life despite, even if you're suffering, like cancer patients are suffering. And then there's, there's no taking away from the suffering, especially if you're a stage four cancer patient, right? Like you can do psilocybin. You're not, you're going to, you're not going to stop suffering. You're going to be, you're, you're still going to be in, in some pain. There's some research that pain get, does get a little bit better. Uh, but this is research from the 60s, 60s from a guy called Eric Kast. Um, anecdotally, people say, this is what I hear from some of the Hopkins providers that are doing this kind of research right now, that anecdotically patients still feel the pain, but they're not as affected by it as they were before. 
So those are important things. And, and I think that they may be related to meaning, like uh, this is more important in my life, I'm gonna focus my attention in it. And they can, and there's a, a sort of detachment that occurs from these physical impairments that is interesting and worth exploring. Yeah, you know, I once heard Tim Ferriss describe this, you know, taking a psychedelic as you have 50 tabs open on your computer, you have music playing in one, you have, you know, your, you have your editing software, you have all these different things. And what, you know, psychedelic does is it just clears all that out and helps you start from the beginning as well. And I feel that it makes sense when you're going through like that amount of suffering, you kind of need a hard reset. You know, you need to re realign yourself and, and think deeply about your life and, and, and to have that meaning, you know, like I can, I can see, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, you know, obviously you're definitely a doctor here, uh, but I can see how somebody walking through life without having the sense of meaning or purpose. Yeah. can 100% be i can just imagine the the body language the the vocal the, the the kind of language they're using to speak the kind of interactions that they're having the way they feel the way they look at the world and um the transformation that can happen and see the world of a difference because yet yeah, your mind is so powerful it can really be like a, a you know a huge difference between someone making it and someone not obviously not all the time it doesn't rely on your mind but that can definitely help right i think so i mean that that's why that's why i think too if, if you think about how to do psychedelics change people the answer is we don't know yet but there's a lot of hypotheses and one of the hypotheses that i like most is is the one from imperial college of london in which they talk a little bit about Okay, imagine when you're, a, when you're a kid, you're a kid, you come into this world and you absorb information. You don't make a lot of interpretation, a lot of, in the beginning, you're kind of like a camera. Imagine a camera taking pictures or taking video. It's raw image, raw video files that weigh a, a ton of like megabytes. I don't know, depending on the quality. And then and then you do that through most of your childhood. And then at some point you have enough information that you start creating a model of reality. And that model of reality is really what helps you base your action. So now you really don't have to be absorbing what reality is. It's not that you're absorbing the images and the sounds and the people and the, and the way that people uh, treat you and how to react when people treat you to survive, right? It's all about survival when you're a little kid because you need the help of your parents so you you want to make your parents happy when you're a little kid you, you want to make sure that like like you don't know they're they're not going to kill you they're, they're not most case scenarios like one would hope that they're not going to hurt you, your kid but but you, you as a kid like don't really know you're just reacting to what's happening in your environment and and so you create these ways of behavior that promote your survival but then what also happens is that as you're absorbing this information and creating this model of reality you translate that model of reality to every single other experience in your life now when you do that you kind of make mistakes because not all people are like your parents and your siblings and maybe your like close relatives 
So let's say that you live in a, in, in a sort of like difficult environment. And, and, and we talked a little bit about this in, 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 our, in my podcast last week that you had a tough childhood, right? Like, you, like if you, this may have happened to you that, the, that if people were like violent towards you or they were suspicious of you and they always thought that there was like something bad going on, like you, you grow suspicious and you grow thinking that other people just want to hurt you in one way or another. And then that's your model of reality. And then and you think that's truth, but that's not necessarily truth. And then suddenly you go to a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy session. And what the hypothesis says here, there's, there's multiple aspects of it. I'm overly simplifying it. But one of them is that this model of reality that is mostly held in your, in, 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 let's say like your, your frontal cortex, it's kind of like shut down. It's shut down and then suddenly you start absorbing reality once again as when you were a kid and at the same time you 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 suddenly you don't have this childhood environment that you had before instead you have like a loving therapist next to you for the next eight hours and and that helps remodel this or, or, or reshape this model of reality in a way that it's more beneficial and more attuned to what we perceive reality is. In the end, nobody, like we, we rely on our senses mostly to perceive reality. So nobody's like 100% correct. But you get closer to, to what's, you, you let, I guess that you would, you become less uh, prone to your prior behavioral patterns based on a flaw model of reality. Now, after that session, you still have to make sure that you continue reshaping your behavior because a lot of these patterns that you have are based on habit. So you're going to have to change your habits regardless. And that's your individual work. So psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is not going to, it's not going to be the cure all and all because even if you do have these wonderful, amazing insights and this, uh, I think that a psychedelic glow, some people call it, that you really just feel great after for a period of time. You still have to make sure that you change your patterns of behavior in such a way that you can sustain that feeling of just, just overall enjoyment. And, and that will require a ton of things. I, I have a podcast with a, a shaman and also a physician that, that works in Ecuador. And we we're talking a little bit about this. And something he says is, the tribe is something that shamans teach a lot to people uh, in the sense that, okay, you did this thing, you realize what you need to do better. Now you go do better, but change your tribe and in, in such a way that the people you surround yourself with are more prone to do the things that you want to change in your life. So if you, if you want to stop drinking, well, maybe, maybe hang out with people that do more sports. If you want to, I don't know, if you want to make more money, well, we'll hang out with people that, that make more money and, and, and let those habits like sink in your life as well. So the, the personal responsibility regarding change is not affected by psychedelics, but the personal realization of what needs to be done is. Yo, you just dropped so much knowledge right there. And the way you framed it was so powerful it totally makes sense 
for your habits afterwards because yeah you you just had this whole different perspective this whole mind shift in your brain and i also think it's very important as you you said with the therapist being by your side for for eight hours it's very important that you take that time to digest what happened and you know instead of you take it the next day you're back out into the real world it's like wait you take it and then let me rest let me digest everything let me process everything and when you when you talked about the tribe i believe that's 100 percent the truth because i used to be this really undisciplined person you know smoked weeds you know every single day watching anime shows and watching tv and i wanted to change in my life and i knew that if i wanted to change I had to be around other people who were also hustling. And the biggest reason why I am able to wake up early in the morning and meditate and do my push-ups and journal and all that stuff is because my tribe also does that. My tribe takes cold showers. To us, it's such a normal thing. It's not it's actually weird if you don't take cold showers. Like it's almost like, why aren't you taking cold showers? That's something that you should be doing. But yet yeah, your, your tribe has such a massive effect on the person you are. And for you, like we, we met like at a business conference. When did it occur to you to start surrounding yourself around, you know, smarter people and more ambitious people? I think that started when I was in medical school. I, I, as I mentioned, I took a break. I, I, I decided that I wanted to become um, like the best in my field, like do the best, uh, uh, the best. I don't know. Like I don't think that you can actually quantify the best, but I, like I wanted to, I wanted to really push my field forward, and I knew that in order to do that, I wanted to, to get trained by the best. And to be in a place where everybody around me is excellent and, and really holds their practice and their research to the utmost level of ethical and just the pursuit of knowledge. And, and I knew that I had to be really good in order to get to a place like that, right? I was in Ecuador in and in a university that nobody had heard the name of. And, and I, I just studied a lot. And then I, I made sure that I would pick the hardest teachers and then I realized at some point while, while I did this, I, one of the teachers that I picked, she was a neuro, she is a neurologist and also a teacher and she had her shit together. She really, not only was she outstanding, but she, 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 was, she, had, she was not there to waste her time. If you were really, really, if you weren't excellent, you, you were going to fail her class. And, and I really like the way that she thought about it because in her mind, if you're not excellent, you shouldn't be a doctor. You can be like a like a an app, like a not like an okay doctor, right? Like you should shouldn't be like that if you're handling people's lives. So in her mind, she was only gonna ask you incredibly hard questions. She was only she was always gonna push you to the all like the latest knowledge that we have in terms of the different science the, the different clinical sciences. She she was a internal medicine teacher. She made my life very, very hard, but she really expanded me. And, and I just loved working with her. I became her teaching assistant. And then I started writing articles uh, for her 
neurology journal, even though I wanted to be a psychiatrist, I felt like neurology and psychiatry were interrelated. And then, it, and then at that point I realized, oh, I became better because I was like hanging out with somebody that does better. And then that na- it, it became also kind of natural. Um, I, have, I had friends, mine was like a big uh, medical school and I had some friends that wanted to practice in the US and they knew that in order to practice in the US, you needed to be like top on, in, in, your, in your class. And so we just naturally started, started hanging out. And so what ended up happening is that we probably wouldn't get drunk every single night, right? Like we, we, we just wouldn't do that. We, pro- we, we, we still partied. I still go out, you know? And the difference was that we made sure that we studied hard. And, and we did that together. And all of us, like every single, most of us, I would say like 90% of our group of friends that, that really went into this, they, they are where they want to be. And, and then that, that's when it consolidated. And then I just kept doing it. And then I, I came to Duke, like everybody was exceptional, but then I, I did do look for somebody that I respected their work ethic and their intelligence and their habits the most. In, when I was at Duke, it was my program director. She was, she is so hardworking, man. Like she, like she would send me emails all like, like 5 a.m. I, I was already getting emails. I, I worked with her very closely when I was chief resident and like 5 a.m. She was like, oh, I already swam like uh, 25 pools. Like, what have you done? Like those kinds of things. And, and, and she was like on top of her stuff all the time. You know, you can be on top of like a very difficult and, and hectic life for a week or for a month. But in order to be on top of your shit all the time, or let's say 90% of the time, that requires a level of discipline and commitment that and like you're just not going to not do the thing that you need to do. You're not, you just, even if you're a little bit tired, you're still going to wake up at 4 a.m. Go do your like 50 pulls. She ran marathons. She like, I, I don't know if she did triathlons. Anyway, that, like, that, I, I, I really loved her work ethic. So I tried to emulate it to the best way that I could. And, and yeah, and I, and I, that's what I do. Like I try to hang out with the people that are the best in the place that I am or, or the best is always, I say the best because of, I don't know, English is a, a, a second language, but what I mean is that the people that I respect their work ethic the most, I try to be hanging out with them and so that it sticks with me. Yeah, and you can't help but hold yourself to the same standard when you're with them. It's like, oh, when I'm with you, I feel like I have to get better. Even still, like if I hang out with friends that I used to smoke weed with, I feel like I'm supposed to smoke weed, even though I haven't done it since the last time I saw them, which was like probably like, you know, six months to a year ago. And you, you still feel like that. It's like, but like, even when you hang out with those hustlers, there's that obligation. Like when we hang out, the rules of hanging out with me, if you want to spend time with me, is that we work hard. That's the standard that I set for myself and I don't accept anything. And you want to, and the, the cool thing about human beings is there, well, there's, it's, I can see two sides of it, right? Like the fact that we want to be accepted by people and that can be hurtful and that can also be very helpful. And I think in this case, how it can be very helpful is wanting to 
always like not rest on your laurels. Like when you have friends who are, who are hustling and winning, it's not like you make it into that circle. So social circle, and then you can relax. It's like, no, you're always proving yourself. You're always showing them that you, that they can trust you. They'll give you assignments. You're like, Oh, just because I'm here and you guys know me doesn't mean that I can start slacking off. It's, I have to prove it again and I have to do that again. And then I, and I'm looking at you, same thing. Are you okay? You follow through and we're just getting those reference experiences. And over time we build this trust bond and we become closer and we get a lot more stuff done. And it's a much more beautiful life because of that. And I want to talk about, well, you were going to look like you're going to jump in and say something there. No, go ahead. Yeah. I want to talk about when did you start re, like other than medicine, when did you start like investing in yourself into like stuff in terms of like personal development? Oh, I think that I've never not, well, no, that's not entirely accurate. I think that maybe end of high school, I, I, it, it's, I think it's just part of who I am. I don't think I ever thought even too much about it. I've just like gained more momentum and, I, and then I like grew older and had a little bit more money to like actually financially invest in these things. But I always would look at myself and think of, okay, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I want in my life? How do I get what I, I never thought I can't get anything. I've ne- if there's something that my parents taught me, like put very well in my mind or in my unconscious mind is that I have never thought that I can't get something, whatever that is in my life. I mean, there's some, like, I can't be like, another race, right? Like there are some things that I can't really change because I am like what I am. Um, but, the, but in terms of like attainments in my life, I've never thought that I couldn't do it. So I would always look at myself sometimes more when I was younger, maybe less objectively. So, but as I grow older, more objectively. So, and, and I would say, okay, what are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? What do I want in my life and how do I get there? So every time that I would sense or notice a weakness in one aspect of my personality and that would prevent me from getting where I wanted to go, I would make sure that I find a way to fix it. When I was younger, I was like very introverted, very introverted guy, which, which comes as a shock to my current friends. But I was very introverted and I realized that I needed to become like less my dad was also like an extremely extroverted dude so i could see the contrast in his behavior and my behavior in the sense that if i went out with my dad to like buy some fucking groceries like it i'm not joking you like 10 people on the way to the grocery shop would stop him and say hi to him because he he was friends with him same thing on the way back so then i'm like wow this is crazy my cousins uh, joke that he should like try to become president or something because so many people love him. And, and then, I, so I could see that, right? Like I could see that. And I could see that I wasn't exactly like that. And, and I needed some sort of training. So I started reading about interper- like in, 
interpersonal relationships. And, and I started realizing that this was like a sort of like anxiety that I had. And then I forced myself to talk with strangers for years. Like I would say, like, I'm going to talk with strangers for like, I'm going to talk with 30 people today. And I would go to the bus stop. And like, if I'm taking a bus and I would talk with the person next to me, which is pretty normal in South America, but not as normal in the US. So there's like a, a component of like anxiety there. And I would just like keep doing it until it wasn't an issue anymore. But like it, it may not be a natural problem to some people, but, but to some people it is. So I, w- I would, I normally like would take my biggest weakness and like work it until I find it that it's in a level that I enjoy it. Another one is like running, right? Like I never really loved running. But now it's gotten, well, I ran, and after some time I trained, et cetera, and I got into running marathons. Well, marathon, I've only done one last year. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe something that I want to do is run like 12 to 13 miles a couple times a week. And, and I think I'm going to do that. I, I, the reason I'm going to do it is because I really enjoy running, because I enjoy the, just like being outdoors and doing this thing and hearing some music or hearing the podcast or hearing like an audiobook. And I, I just find it very nice. And I like the, the high that I get from the running after. So I'm probably going to do that. I don't know if I'm going to become like a Ironman runner. Like, I don't think I, I need to go to that level of, like, I don't want to be elite athlete, but I do want to be in a sort of shape that, that I enjoy. So I'm going to, I do some, like, like I was just doing some push. I actually, I mean, my workout clothes, I was doing some push ups and pull ups before uh, talking with you. There are some metrics that I measure in my life. And I, I mean, in most of them, I want to be like, probably like good. In none of them, I want to be, in, so, in very few of them, I want to be exceptional. But in some of, in most of them, I want to be good, yeah. I want to I want to dive a little bit deeper in, into running because on your podcast, we talked about how you actually don't like running as much because you have friends that love to run. You're like, what? And now, now you're actually liking running a lot more. Personally, I cannot stand running. I don't like to warm up. I don't like to stretch. I don't want to go on the run. I hate the entire run, but I do it because it gets me stronger mentally. What got you into running initially? So I think kind of like you, I hated running. And I wasn't, I wasn't able to run three miles. Like I, that would be like too much for me. And, and my friends were runners and I felt like I was a little bit out of shape. So I talked with my friends and I, and I just wanted the challenge. I just wanted to tell myself, I, want, I, I had this in my bucket list of life. One of the things I wanted to do is run a marathon. And, and I said, well, you know, we're here. My friends are runners. We're kind of out of shape. Might as well try it. So I told them, let's do it. And I knew I wanted the, the support from them in order to do something that I hated. So I said, let's just do it. And then they love running. So they're like, yeah, let's do it. So then I trained myself all the way to the half marathon. I hated the whole training. I, 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 I got a, like a bad knee pain for a, for a while. I almost didn't finish the, the race because of the pain that was so bad. But then I, then, I, and then I had to start training for the full marathon, which we decided to do in Athens. Really? Which, yeah, so we, so we, we ran the, the Athens Marathon last year. 
which was, it's one of the harder marathons around there because it's like a lot of it is uphill and it's pretty hot. Well, it's not that hot because it's in November, but it was kind of hot that day. I can't remember very well, but it was a, it's a hard one and specifically because it's uphill. And, and, I, and we thought it was a cool idea to run marathons and like do at the same time, like go on vacation for a week, like do the destination marathon. So I, I think I'm, I definitely want to do the, the New York one now, the Chicago one. I want to do the one in Berlin. Maybe something in Tokyo would be cool. Like just like to go to a place, run a marathon there and then party. I like the idea of like doing that at least once or twice a year. And, but anyway, I hated it. The whole thing until I was running around maybe 14 to 15 mile runs. I, I used to do like one long run, one short run. So I would do every Saturday, I would run like from 12 to 18 miles. You kind of like up titrate. And then the short run was like maybe three to seven miles. I can't remember exactly. So what started happening halfway through my full marathon training, this was way after running 12 miles like once a week. This was running around 14 to 15 miles every Saturday. Then I started getting the runner's high. Just then it started experiencing it. And when I started experiencing that, I'm like, whoa, this is a game changer. I understand. I understand why people do this to themselves and they love it because you start your day, you run 14 miles, and then you have this feeling of love towards the whole world. There's nothing that can happen that can affect you because you have pushed yourself in a way that your body didn't know that could. It's always this like thing that your body tells you, oh, you can't do it anymore, and then you just do it, and then you cross that barrier, and then boom, you have this overwhelming feeling of like, oh, life's amazing. Like this surge of endorphins that lasts you. There's like a, a spike in that moment, but that, that really lasts you for the rest of the day. And then I realized, okay, this is like good for my body and good for my soul. So I'm going to keep doing it. And that's, that's when I, it flipped. That's when I realized, okay, I love running. And, and then it just becomes not as hard. Uh, for example, running like, I, in summer here in New York was hard because it was I, I do at least seven miles every time I go. And in Central Park, there's like a lot of uphills. There's a lot of hills, not that much, but there's, it's kind of hills. It's kind of hard. And then running that at 90 degrees, kind of hard, man, kind of hard. And, the, and it was just around that time when, when I would, could run because I don't run very early or very late. So it would be, I always run like around noon, so it's like not the best like time in terms of temperature, but I, that's the time I could do it. So I would do it. And it wasn't pretty all times, but every once in a while, I get that, that runner's high and I kind of like it. And that's one of the reasons I want to jump into 12, 12 miles every time. So I, I kind of like can try to secure that runner's high to just feel uplifted for that day, the whole day. Really? So that's, that's when you feel it. Cause I'll tell you what, man, I have never, I don't think I've experienced it. And I think I probably would know if I did. Cause usually after I'm done, I'm like, I'm just glad that's over with. And I'm running, like I just did my first half marathon this past weekend. I did 10 miles yesterday. And then my marathon is in less than a month. It's like 29 days from now, 28 days. And I'm running my first 20 miler um, on Saturday 
and I Good am a little, I'm a little nervous for it, but I think I'm, I'm always just thinking it's going to get me stronger mentally. It's going to get me strong. I'm going to push through it. I put my mind to it. And I'm not going to stop, but maybe, maybe I might have to experience that runner's high in order for me to be like, Oh, also when you run, do you like when, cause I always run like at 3 PM, like my time three thirty ish. And it's like in the death of heat usually. Cause I live in California. It's mm-hmm. usually like 90 to like, maybe sometimes I've even ran in like 108 degree weather. So I'm just fighting the whole time against my brain yeah. and that's why I do it. But would you recommend actually doing it during a cooler hour? Um, yeah. I mean, it become, I, I would recommend like, don't escape weather, right? Like that's what I would recommend. If you, if you decided that you want to run at 3 PM, that's the time you want to do it. And it's 108 degree weather. Just do it. Like it's not going to be the most beautiful run, but when it's suddenly cooler weather and then you're doing it and you did it on the death of heat, it feels like a breeze. It feels like, oh, this is way nicer. Like I'm not struggling as much. And that le- lack of struggle comes from like the, the extreme struggle that you did before. And so it's kind of like not great. Like I wouldn't chase like the 110 degrees. Like, like I would like something I personally wouldn't do is that if I see that the hottest of the day would be, 4 p.m. today, I'm going to run at 4 p.m. Probably wouldn't do that. But some people do do that. And, and, and it's to like expand that like difficulty, right? Like, so, so I would say, do what you want, man. I love if, it, if it's raining, I'm, I'm still running. And I love it if it's raining. If it's super cold, I, I think that my first half marathon, I run in like 20 degree weather. It's fine. Just do it. Um, I think in the end, it's about the discipline, right? And, and just trying to make sure that you do the thing you want to do and, and not lose that momentum. Okay, gotcha. Because I was, I was planning on running the, marath- the the 20 miles this week because I'm like, I notice that I am more drained when it's hotter outside because when I ran my half marathon, it was cooler outside. And I finished it and I thought, Man, if I feel this amazing in terms of like, I feel like I can keep going with my run with like, and it's cooler outside. I think I built that endurance because I keep running in the death of heat. But on Saturday, I plan on making sure that I get out the, out the house when it's like really, cause I wake up at three fifty every day. Right. So thinking about getting out of the house by like 6am, 6 30. And like, it's, it's a little bit dark outside, but it's, it's going to be cooler and I don't want the heat to be a factor for me for my run. Yeah, you don't want that in longer runs because you're going to get dehydrated. Like you're for sure, like if it's seven miles, not so big, it's not a big deal. Even if it's 10, even if it's a half marathon, I feel like even up to a half marathon, it's not that big a deal if you're not like, if it's like super hot and you're not drinking, like you should always be drinking water. You should... I, I do think that after 10 to 12 miles, maybe you want to have those goos. Are you, are you having those like goos? To, I'm like, going to pick have. some up. So you just get the, like a, cause I was going to order my Amazon, but if I order them on Amazon today, it's going to get here on Saturday. So I'm going to go to a sports store, but they, they sell them usually at like big five, stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Def, if you're running 20 miles, you need that because what's going to happen is that you, you're going to hit a wall in, in terms of your energy levels are going to drop. 
you're going to feel weird. You're going to feel drained. You don't understand. Like you don't, you may not even understand what's going on. You're going to feel cold. You're going to be like, what the hell's going on with my body? I felt that before where I'm running yeah. and then I get cold. I'm like, this doesn't make any, I kind of freak out a little bit. Like this is. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, so, so there's a couple things that could be happening. Um, one thing it could be that you're, you're just exhausting yourself. Like if you're running fasted or something like that, you, you may be exhausting your, your glycogen um, reserves and then you're just entering this like destruction of your muscle period and then you, like, your body's like going like crazy. So something else that, so you, I do recommend that like, I think it, they, in the advertisement of Goo, they say every 45 minutes. I normally, if I'm running less than 12 miles, I'll have one of them before I go running. But if I'm running more than 12 miles, I definitely will carry like three or four of them. And like, I'll have one of them before starting to run. And once I hit like four and a half miles, I'll have one every, every hour or every 45 minutes. And that really helps. Something else that could be happening to you is that your temperature goes kind of, your temperature perception goes like a little bit, it just becomes out of whack sometimes when you run. And what will happen is that suddenly you finish the run and you're going to feel super, super cold, super, super cold, even though it's not that cold and, and your body's like not producing this heat. But really what happened is that your body produced so much heat that your thermoregulatory system is kind of like out of whack and you're going to just feel weird. You're going to want to go to a shower, put some hot, hot water. Um, some, so that's like a temporary thing. If like you're damaging your muscles, which has happened to a friend of mine. If you're damaging your muscles because you didn't hydrate very well and you didn't have enough carbs before a long run, you, you will have something called rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdomyolysis, it's, I guess, the English way to say it. And uh, basically, which means that your muscles are breaking because they, there's not enough energy and they're just like destroying itself. And then your muscles go to your kidneys and then your, your kidneys start like malfunctioning and then you're going to feel sick. So make sure you, hi, you, you hydrate and make sure that you take this goose because it's, it's just useful. And, and even with all of that, you may hit a wall when, when running a marathon for your first time. Like you, even with all of that, you're going to be at mile, like, I don't know, 23 and your, your body's going to shut down. I mean, it hasn't happened to me, but, but I know that it has, I know it's like a very common thing to happen in your first marathon and so you really just want to be eating a lot, like through your run. And so for sure, if you're doing 20 milers, you need to, to have goose. You need to hydrate very well. I, if, when I used to do 20 milers, I would have the goose and I would have a, like a little bit of a backpack so I could like drink water mixed with Gatorade. That's what I would do. Like I would just like, like I had a sort of straw and I would like have some Gatorade mixed with water every once in a while. Mm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, because I'm like, I got to get those, I got to get those goos. Because, you know, it's an interesting thing. I was going to just attempt to just go straight David Goggins on, on this and just mentally tough. Uh, who cares? No, like, little, little preparation. But I got on a phone with my, one of my mentors, and he's like, no, nah, man, you got to, first of all, before you run a, a full marathon, you got to run 20 miles. Number two, you got to have goos with you. And never, never even crossed my mind. So even though I'm a little bit less than a month away, I, um, I'm a little bit, I feel like I've been training this whole time, but I feel now I have some more, I feel a little bit more prepared. So I'm excited, man. Just, um, yeah. 
one more question before we before we um start to wrap this up. How did you feel about yourself or how, how did that feel once you first completed that marathon? Did all that training feel worth it? Cause I keep thinking about that. I'm like, this training sucked. It wasn't that much fun. I feel like I'm gonna keep going cause I'm gonna keep getting mentally tougher, but I feel like maybe if the marathon, if I feel amazing, like I hit this huge accomplishment, I would probably run some more, but how did you feel after that? I felt great. But the, the thing is that I, made sure to combine that with a lot of positive reinforcement. So I, I do feel healthier when I run. If I don't run, I don't feel healthy. So that's just like ingrained in my body now. It wasn't like that at the beginning, but I feel like that now. And that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, is that if I'm going to run a marathon, I always tie it down with vacations. So I'm going on vacations with my friends that are my, like my best friends from my childhood. And we're going to explore a new city that I have never explored in my life. And, and I'm going to have just a lot of fun. I'm going to eat in, in amazing restaurants. I'm going to drink amazing drinks. I'm going to hang out in cool places. And I'm going to run a marathon. And so it's all this mixed like, like the reward, like, let's say like the marathons on Saturday, I will fly to that place on Thursday, acclimate, relax on Friday, then I run and then I did it. And then I have a week worth of reward and a vacation. So in that way, it's cool. And, and that's how I do it. And, and for me, that's the, that's the way that I've integrated into my lifestyle. Because, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that a lot of people like drinking. And a lot of people like doing different types of drugs, whether it's like legal drugs or not. And, and, and that's fine with me. I, I, I'll drink every once in a while. Uh, but if I'm hanging, I want to make sure that I want to live a, a long time and I want to be healthy a long time. So I want to make sure that the people I'm hanging out with are doing stuff that are going to make them healthy as well. And because it's either you are creating new habits in, in your people or your people are creating new habits in you. And so what I'm trying to do is like play tennis with my friends and I try to go running with my friends and try like, like let's do like a fucking picnic or something instead of just going to a bar and drinking, you know? And, and so I'm, I, I'm integrating my lifestyle and my fun in activities that are good for me, that I enjoy. And yes, I'm going to like drink and I'm going to like go to a party and I'm going to go hit a club, but I'm going to be healthy 90% of the time. And that's kind of like how I do it. Wow. That's that. I, I love that, man. That's uh, that's, that's very powerful. Cause that's actually my birthday week. Uh, I'm doing it the day before my birthday. So it just makes me think, yeah, maybe I should actually celebrate my birthday and, and all that stuff. Cause I was thinking that's it. And then what's the next thing, but I should take some time to reward myself. And yeah, man. Yeah. Thank Thank you, man. So uh, Christian, is it, Anything you wanna you wanna give in terms of some like some one of some most profound life advice or whatever it is something that you want to give to somebody in terms of what would you say that helped you improve your life or something some kind of wisdom or knowledge that you would want to end this on um, that people can take on and go change their life. Okay, if you want to change your life, be objective about it. Like be take some like uh, be, be mathematical about it like pick one thing that you can measure and set a goal that you can measure and just one don't say 20 you said one goal that you can measure let's say and and add it in, in and say i'm gonna do it 
in this amount of time. Set yourself a goal that is trackable and measurable. Set yourself an amount of time and create a realistic plan. And once you did all those things, just do the plan. Just follow the plan. And, and follow the plan on a daily basis. Like make sure that you can track things on, on, on a trimester kind of, like, kind of way. Make sure that you can track things on a weekly kind of way. And make sure that you can track things on a daily kind of way. So at, at the end of the day, you feel good about you doing your daily thing. At the end of the week, you feel great about fulfilling your weekly goals. At the end of the month, you feel great about fulfilling your monthly goals and your quarterly goals. And then by the end of the year, you rocked it. And then you do... And then you feel amazing because you did that one thing that you maybe didn't even think that was possible. And then you create another goal and so on and so forth until you die. <laughs> Solid, man. Uh, Christian, yeah. where can everybody uh, find you and uh, listen to your podcast and where can people get in contact with you? Yeah, you can find me in all the platforms uh, from like Apple Podcasts to, to YouTube. It's called Thrive, the Christian Beer Show. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I, I advertise all my stuff there. It's Christian Sferens, which is kind of a mouthful, but I'm sure you'll be able to see it once Greg posts it. So thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you. Hey, likewise, man. Can you spell uh, beer for us, uh, for the audience? B as in Brown, J as in Jacob, E as in Ear, R as in Radio, R as in Radio again, E as in Ear. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. I had a ball. Christian, thanks for taking time here today to give some value, man. I really do appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Likewise, man. Good luck in your marathon. Happy birthday. Appreciate you, my man. Yeah. See ya.